Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode will be hosted by Will Foos, one of my classmates at Drexel University College of Medicine. Enjoy! Hello, future doctors. Thank you for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Will Foos, and I'm one of Rhea's fourth-year classmates at Drexel University College of Medicine. I'm going into ophthalmology. I will be your host for today. Today we're going to cover ocular motility, neuroanatomy, and the eye exam. Before we start, I suggest you listen to the normal anatomy and physiology of the eye lecture. It will help with some of these concepts that we're about to cover. It's really important, especially to have a firm grasp of the autonomic nervous system to understand this lecture. We're going to begin today with ocular motility. Now, it's important to note that issues in ocular motility can arise from the nerves that innervate the eyes as well as the muscles themselves, and they typically cause two symptoms. One is important to know when dealing with adult patients, and the other is important to know, especially when dealing with uh, pediatric patients, but is also applicable to adult patients. Those symptoms are diplopia and amblyopia. These are the two primary symptoms, like I said, of ocular motility diseases. First, we have diplopia, which obviously has the prefix di, meaning two. You have two eyes, thus your brain gets two different signals. When they are properly aligned, your brain can integrate these signals into one image. Furthermore, because you have these two images that are slightly different, you get an element of 3D depth perception, which we call stereopsis. But Will, I can tell depth with one eye. Yes, you probably can, and this is largely based on other information that your brain is able to integrate. For instance, if you're doing a laparoscopic procedure, you don't have stereoopsis. Uh, this is especially because you have one camera in the abdomen that's looking around and you're using that screen to basically tell where things are. Obviously, you have your tactile feel, and when you move that camera around, it allows your brain to integrate that information and approximate depth. This is harder, obviously, if you're standing still and if there's less motion involved. Because of the extraocular muscles or the nerves that innervate them aren't working properly, you're going to see double because the eyes will be misaligned. Hence, you will get diplopia, seeing double. Now, this can be caused by a lot of diseases. Uh, particularly, one is thyroid eye disease, uh, which you may know as Graves' disease. These patients develop proptosis and diplopia because of connective tissue that builds up within their extraocular muscles and in their orbit. Some patients may be seeing double, but because the images are so close together, they may describe it as blurring. This can easily be corrected if you have the patient close one eye. It's important clinically, not necessarily for step one, to be able to tell the difference between blurry vision and diplopia. However, if you see double or have blurring in one eye once you cover the other, this may be due to refractive error, and I suggest you review our last podcast to understand refractive error. Next, we have amblyopia. Have you heard of this? It's a weird word, but it can be caused by the same thing uh, that we've talked about, the misaligned eyes. However, it can be caused by other things as well. Can you tell me the definition of amblyopia? If you said the brain selectively turning off one eye or another, that would be correct. When you hear the word amblyopia, besides this definition, the brain turning off one eye, I want you to think kids. This is because while amblyopia may be found in adults, it starts when patients are kids. 
What word would you use for a disease that someone is born with? You'd say something like congenital. Diseases that cause amblyopia can be congenital. So if an adult patient has amblyopia, you largely cannot treat it, but you can treat it in kids. Thus, always think kids with amblyopia. Like I said, amblyopia is the brain selectively turning off one of the eyes. Once again, the brain turns off one of the eyes. This may be because of misalignment, where you have two competing signals coming from both eyes. If the eyes are a little askew or the patient is cross-eyed, the brain that's growing in the child will shut off the bad eye in favor of the good eye because it can't deal with these competing signals. This may also happen in one of the eyes that has a cataract or some other disease that's interfering with the signal going to the brain. Like I said, the brain shuts off the bad eye. Now, the brain may shut off these eyes to different degrees. Sometimes these patients might not be completely blind. However, they might have one eye that's 20-20 vision, the other one is 2100. However, once the brain has fully grown, amblyopia becomes irreversible. This is why kids experiencing amblyopia must have the cause of their amblyopia treated, ideally before the age of six to eight, for complete remission. Uh, but it can be effective with treatment in up to teenage years. Now we have our next question. What are some ways that we can treat amblyopia? The first thing that we normally go to is we patch the good eye. Obviously, if there's a muscular issue, this will force the brain to use the other bad eye and basically strengthen the muscles in that, and hopefully that will help to align the eyes if the alignment is an issue. Another thing we can do is fix the disease. If a patient has a cataract in one eye that is causing it to be amblyopic, we can take out that cataract. Another thing that works similar to patching a good eye is atropine drops. You blur the eye by making it dilate and take in too much light, and therefore the brain has to rely on the bad eye that's not been dilated. Another one is to use glasses. This is particularly in the case of a special disease called accommodative esotropia. And then finally, we have surgery at our disposal. Now, we've been talking about misaligned eyes. Do you know what the term for that is? The term for misaligned eyes is strabismus, and this is applicable largely to kids, but can also be in adults. There's certain classifications of strabismus or misalignment. You can test this by using the light reflex. You shine a light in the pupils directly in front. Usually you prefer to use a pen light. And you look at the reflection of the light off of the corneas, usually in their pupils. You can also use an uncover or cover test. So this allows you to tell if the part of the pupil with the reflection is off or if the eye moves when you cover and uncover that there's some sort of deviation um, in the eyes. So then we have suffixes that we use for strabismus. One is phoria and the other is tropia. Now phorias are usually weak and they're not super noticeable, but you can detect them with the cover-uncover test versus atropia is very strong, usually at rest, and um, these patients will be very clearly cross-eyed or their eyes will be askew. But ultimately, think of these suffixes as largely the same to different degrees. Now the prefixes we use for strabismus include eso, exo, hyper, and hypo. First we have esotropia, and this is deviation of the normal eye inward, basically towards the nose. This makes you cross your eyes. One that we talked about, which is kind of beyond the scope of step one, but is particularly interesting, is accommodative esotropia. In this, you have far-sighted kids who become cross-eyed. So 
When you cross your eyes, you're essentially focusing on something up close, and this simulates accommodation. Now, we talked about in the previous podcast that accommodation allows you to fatten your lens to focus on things up close. Now, if someone's particularly farsighted, they may have difficulty focusing on objects that are at the normal range that you need to see. Thus, to help focus in on these closer objects than their farsight, these kids will cross their eyes, and they find that this lets them fatten the lens of their eyes to focus on the object. Unfortunately, if you keep crossing your eyes, you're getting competing signals to your brain, which can cause amblyopia, so this needs to be treated. And you can treat this with glasses, usually to start out with. By correcting the farsightedness, the patient doesn't have to accommodate to focus on objects, and then they can straighten their eyes out. Next, we have exotropia, and this is deviation of the eye outward, so usually towards the ear. When I said esotropia, it'd be deviation towards the nose. This can be one eye or both eyes. Um, then we have hypertropia, which is deviation of the eye upward, and then hypotropia, which is deviation downward. It's important to note that cranial nerves and the muscles causing the misalignment of the eye. Often, when it's a muscular issue, the eyes still move in the same direction as each other. They move proportionately to each other. However, their set point is usually different. Versus if you have a cranial nerve issue, a palsy, a stroke, for instance, one eye will just not be able to move in the same direction as the other eye. Also, it's important to think about age and history of the patient that can help you tell the difference. For instance, an older patient with chronic issues like diabetes is probably more likely to have a cranial nerve palsy, versus a young kid or a patient with thyroid eye disease is more likely to have a muscle issue. So what are these muscles that we're talking about? The extraocular muscles, which provide the extraocular movements. Quick question, what tests would we use to check on extraocular movements? If you said the H test, you would be correct. Now, it's always important when you're examining the eye to consider each one individually. While you're doing this, the patient will be looking at the H with both eyes, but it's important that you evaluate each eye individually. Now, important thing to know about all the extraocular muscles, which we'll talk about in their related cranial nerves, is that when in doubt, cranial nerve 3, the ocular motor nerve, is responsible for that eye movement with two exceptions. So when in doubt, cranial nerve 3 is responsible for most eye movements. We'll start with the, the recti muscles. These are the four cardinal directions of the eye. You have the superior rectus, which lifts the eye superiorly. Like I said, it's innervated by cranial nerve 3. The inferior rectus, which pulls the eye down, also cranial nerve 3. The lateral rectus, and this is one of those exceptions, pulls the eyes toward the ear or laterally, and that's innervated by cranial nerve 6, the abducens nerve. You can remember that because it's AB, like abduction. And then you have the medial rectus, which pulls the eye toward the nose nasally, and that is innervated by cranial nerve 3 also. Next we have the obliques. Now, it's important to know that the direction of the name is usually the opposite of their primary movement. These have three functions each. It can be kind of confusing to remember all of them, but just remember that largely they do the opposite of what their name says. The name primarily refers to the position of those muscles. Each does its actions, like I said, but I think of it first and foremost as a torsion sort of muscle, and the other motions that they do 
are essentially redundant and overlap with the other eye muscles, the recti. So think of it first and foremost as twisting a doorknob, and it determines whether it goes clockwise or counterclockwise based on which side. So first we have the superior oblique. Now this abducts, intorts, and depresses while adducted. So that's some confusing mumbo jumbo. That's a lot of directional words. So don't worry about that. The way I always think of it is it pulls towards the nose and down. Like I said, it's superior, so it does the opposite. It pulls down and it pulls in towards the nose. And then it also has that sort of torsion. Downward motion when the eye is looking towards the nose. And it's innervated by the fourth nerve, the trochlear nerve. I want you to imagine this or even do this in person if you if the spirit so moves you imagine you're trying to scratch your back with your right arm over your head your elbow is pointing towards the air and your hand moves back behind your back in between your shoulder blades this is meant to represent the left superior oblique the elbow is the trochlea basically where the muscle attaches nasally and it's always going to be on the nasal or nose side. So if you're lifting your right arm up, the right elbow is on the nose side, so you're representing the muscle that goes to the left eye, versus if you lift your left arm up, the left elbow is on the nose side, so that's gonna represent your right eye. Hence, right arm equals left superior or oblique, and left arm equals right superior or oblique. Now, your head is essentially the eyeball. Grab your head or hair, whichever you prefer, right behind the ear on the opposite side of your head from the elbow. In this case, it would be the left ear if you're using your right arm. You pull your arm, that motion down and torqued of your head will be how your eye essentially moves in relation to the superior oblique. Once again, if we're thinking about the left eye and the left superior oblique, we're putting our right arm above our head, we're basically scratching our back, uh, and we're grabbing behind our head, and then you're pulling your head and it sort of intorts that and it pulls it down, especially more towards the nasal side. Now the inferior oblique unfortunately doesn't have a cool mnemonic or uh, exercise that you can do to understand its motion, but just remember it's essentially the opposite of the superior oblique. So it pulls the eye also towards the nose, so in that regard it's not the opposite, but it pulls it up in this case, so it does the opposite of its location. So the inferior oblique is located inferiorly, but it pulls the eye up. And like I said, it also provides that torsion. This upward motion comes when you look at the nose. And it's also innervated by cranial nerve three. The strabismus we talked about, it can be caused if these muscles are overactive or a little too tight. Thus, this would enhance their action, leading to that sort of strabismus. If the muscle is underactive, or if you knocked it out, basically by knocking out the cranial nerve or loosening it, the weakness of that corresponding muscle, you decrease that action and cause it to lose out to the opposing muscle, because this is always a tug-of-war action. Question number one, if you knock out cranial nerve six, what will happen? If you knock out cranial nerve six, you're knocking out the abducens, and it's knocking out the lateral rectus, so the eye won't be able to abduct, abduction. But this would essentially cause some sort of esotropia because the medial rectus would be a little stronger than the lateral rectus. Versus, if you have a tight inferior rectus, what kind of strabismus would you expect to get? If you have a tight inferior rectus, you would basically get a hypotropia or a phoria because its function is a little too strong. Now there's some other 
eye muscles or muscles around the eye that you should know about that are essentially adnexal, they're around it. The first is the orbicularis oculi. This is a sphincter muscle like we talked about in the previous podcast, basically a purse string muscle that surrounds the eyes and the eyelid essentially, and it closes the eye. It's innervated by cranial nerve seven, the facial nerve. It's important to think about this mnemonic where you have the number seven around the eye, and it's essentially seven is like a hook. Literally, the number seven looks like a hook, so it can pull the upper lid closed. Hence, the orbicularis oculi and cranial nerve seven are responsible for closing the eye. Next, the levator palpebri superioris. This attaches to the tarsal plate and is responsible for actively opening the eye via the eyelid. It's basically the top eyelid muscle, and it's innervated by cranial nerve number three. The mnemonic for this is to think of the Roman numeral three as three pillars that are holding the eye open. We also have the superior tarsal muscle, which is a little less important, also called Mueller's muscle, and this also acts to open the eye partially, but it doesn't do so as much as the levator palpebrae superioris. It's sympathetically innervated from the superior cervical ganglion, which is knocked out by Horner syndrome. And there are inferior versions of these, but they aren't really that important. Question, which cranial nerve opens the eye and which closes it? Cranial nerve three is responsible for opening the eye. Remember those three pillars and cranial nerve seven closes it. And if I didn't make this clear, it's the Roman numeral three always looks like three pillars. Now that we've talked about the extraocular muscles, we're gonna talk about the cranial nerves. When thinking about cranial nerves, you have to think about what functions these nerves have. They can be a sensory nerve, a motor nerve, or they can have autonomic function as well, like we emphasized in the previous podcast. Within the autonomic function, there can be sympathetic, fight or flight, and parasympathetic, rest and digest, or secrete. If you divide up the nerves into sensory, motor, sympathetic, and or parasympathetic, it really helps you to understand how the eye works and how these cranial nerves work. We already talked about these a bit in relation to their muscles, and that's the motor function of some of these nerves. Here we'll go into a little more detail about each of those nerves instance, we'll talk about palsies. So palsies essentially think the nerve has been knocked out. You usually don't get a palsy where the nerve is strengthened. It's usually when the nerve is knocked out. But by contrast, the opposite, the muscle that's antagonizing, that will be overactive in comparison. Think of what is knocked out, and that is the palsy. Palsies can be due to compression, stroke, or other central nervous system processes. Compression is probably the most concerning because it can signal something that can essentially kill you, like an aneurysm or a tumor. So your first thought should always be compression if you get a sudden nerve palsy, especially an ocular nerve palsy. And then next you can think of other things like stroke. It's important to know that these palsies also all have lookalikes, and we'll cover each of those. So our first nerve we'll talk about is cranial nerve number three, the oculomotor nerve. Uh, like its name suggests, it's a motor nerve but it's also one of the parasympathetic nerves. We talked about the motor function earlier. It supplies all the extraocular muscles except for the lateral rectus and the superior oblique. And it also supplies the eyelids, levator palpebrae superioris. Its parasympathetic tone is responsible for the pupil and lacrimal gland. Whenever we talk about parasympathetics in the eyes, always, always, always think about the pupil. 
Important question, what other cranial nerves have sympathetic capacity? We talked about cranial nerve number three. The other three cranial nerves to think about are cranial nerve number seven, the facial nerve, cranial nerve number nine, the glossopharyngeal nerve, and cranial nerve number 10, the vagus. It's important to know these for their salivary glands that are innervated by them and also the lacrimal glands in the case of cranial nerve three. Each of these nerves have unique ganglia of these uh, cranial nerves three, seven, nine, not necessarily 10, but cranial nerves three, seven, and nine. And these ganglia are where they hitch a ride with the trigeminal nerve, cranial nerve number five. Now, although these combined fibers provide parasympathetic nerves, cranial nerve five should not be thought of as a parasympathetic nerve. Think of them kind of like braids of the hair where they join together at these ganglia and then they split apart. And the braided part is always going to involve cranial nerve number five. Cranial nerve number three has ganglia where it meets with the trigeminal nerve, and this is the ciliary ganglia. This gives off nerves with multiple functions that we'll talk about a little more when we get to cranial nerve five. There is a nucleus for cranial nerve number three that is responsible for parasympathetics. Do you know what that is? Ettinger-Westphal's nucleus. So parasympathetics, Ettinger-Westphal's nucleus, and the pupil. And this runs with cranial nerve number three. Ettinger-Westphal's nucleus is located in the midbrain, also near the motor nucleus for cranial nerve number three. Ettinger-Westphal's nucleus is the first neuron in this parasympathetic nerve pathway. Cranial nerve number three enters through the superior orbital fissure. And in fact, most nerves that go to the eye all enter through the superior orbital fissure. Cranial nerve three has a unique palsy associated with it. This palsy can essentially be summed up in the phrase down and out. This palsy has the symptoms of ptosis, esotropia, hypotropia, and in certain cases, dilation. So essentially the eye is down and out, out to the side, usually the ear, and usually you have ptosis, so the eyelid is kind of droopy. This occurs in the cases of compression of cranial nerve number three, particularly you want to think about aneurysms or brain tumors. Cranial nerve three is in the midbrain. This region of the brain stem is really important because there's a lot going on there, especially with the circle of Willis. Thus, it can be influenced by diseases such as tumors, aneurysms, like I said. Cranial nerve number three in particular is also particularly susceptible to diabetes. Now, think of cranial nerve three, the actual nerve itself, as having a center and a periphery along the cable. This cable, the motor is in the middle. Remember, M and M, motor is in the middle. This is also applicable to spinal cord tracts, but we'll talk about that in someone else's podcast. This motor area in the middle is particularly susceptible to vascular insults. Obviously, diabetes can provide this. If blood vessels come from the outside of the nerve, the center becomes the hardest place to perfuse and provide nutrients to. Thus, this is affected first by diabetes, unlike the periphery. The periphery, in contrast, is the area that has the parasympathetic fibers of cranial nerve number three. Thus, the parasympathetic fibers are particularly susceptible to compression. They become compressed before the middle of the nerve. Now, here's a question. What is the most common site for an aneurysm that could cause a cranial nerve three palsy? This would be the posterior communicating artery is where we have aneurysms that cause cranial nerve three palsies. Now, like I said, if you have 
parasympathetic involvement, this will affect the pupil, another P. Periphery of the nerve, parasympathetic, and pupil, all Ps. So, pupillary involvement in a cranial nerve 3 palsy is a very, very, very alarming sign. You can also get compression of this nerve if you have uncle herniation, where the brain essentially herniates down into the area of the brain stem. When parasympathetic tone is knocked out, like I said, you don't have rest and digest, so the pupil will dilate, and this is in correspondence to fight or flight, by comparison at least. So whenever there is a blown pupil, something really bad is happening in the brain, whether it's an aneurysm, uncle herniation, or anything else. Remember, blown pupils are always, always, always bad. Don't confuse these pupil dilation of a cranial nerve 3 palsy with Horner's syndrome. This is the look-alike that it's important to know. Horner's syndrome can be equally serious, so like I said, anytime there's a blown pupil, something serious is going on, but it is completely different. Horner's syndrome can betray issues such as lung cancer or other mediastinal or lung pathology. Horner's will also cause ptosis, like cranial nerve 3 palsies, but because of involvement of Mueller's muscle, not because of involvement of the levator palpebrae. And it, like I said, will also affect the pupil. Here is where Horner's syndrome is a little different than a cranial nerve 3 palsy. In Horner's syndrome, you have knocked out sympathetic tone, not parasympathetic tone. Thus, you'll have a larger pupil, but this is the normal pupil. It's the smaller pupil that is the one that has a problem with it. Horner's also doesn't cause any eye deviation, so there's no out part of the down and out. The ptosis, like I said, is less dramatic because it's influenced by Mueller's muscle instead of the levator palpebrae. And then finally, Horner's also has the added symptom of anhydrosis. So Horner's, you think of the triad, ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. However, because meiosis is essentially a constricted pupil, the normal pupil will look dilated by comparison. Thus, you may have to differentiate between it and a cranial nerve 3 palsy. So I have a question. What do you call unequal pupils? Unequal pupils is known as anisochoria. Sometimes this can be physiologic, but if you have a large difference between pupils, usually something bad is going on. Like I said, blown pupils are always a bad sign, and you should think first of Horner's syndrome or cranial nerve number three, palsy. You can figure out the rest from clinical clues. Next, we have cranial nerve number four. This is the trochlear nerve. The mnemonic for this is cranial nerve 4 comes out the back door. This is because the nucleus is on the back side of the brainstem. This is the only cranial nerve that has a nucleus on the back side of the brainstem, particularly in the midbrain. This is a purely motor nerve. It goes also through the superior orbital fissure. Cranial nerve 4 palsy causes essentially tilted head and diplopia, like we've been talking about this entire time, double vision. It causes this issue particularly when you're looking down, and like I said, superior oblique, the function is more involved with looking down, so the eye can't look down as well, because the superior oblique is knocked out. Like I said, the eye can't look down very well. And there's diplopia in issues when you are going downstairs or reading a book. However, this looks really subtle clinically and can be hard to pick up. The big clinical sign you might see is a tilted head or torticollis. Now, like I said, all these cranial nerves have a look-alike that you don't want to get confused with it. 
So the big lookalike for torticollis is having a sternocleidomastoid constriction, or basically it's shortened and the head is turned to the side. And so you can kind of figure this out also by the clinical situation. If a kid shows up, usually it's more likely a congenital issue they're born with. It's probably the sternocleidomastoid constriction rather than a cranial nerve 4 palsy. That's not to say it can't be a cranial nerve 4 palsy, but it's probably not. Next, we have cranial nerve 5, and I like to think of this as a really, really important cranial nerve in regards to all the cranial nerves, and it's the trigeminal nerve. It does a lot more than we will focus on because we're just worrying about the eye. It's important to know that it's primarily a sensory nerve, but it also has motor function, and I'm going to say is autonomic adjacent. Like I said before, it involves a lot of parasympathetic nerve fibers that it runs with, but it itself is not autonomic. Cranial nerve number five has lots of ganglia and nuclei, and it comes out from the pons. It's important to know with the eye that its sensory function is involved with the adjacent skin of the face and the cornea. Cranial nerve number five innervates the cornea. It meets with cranial nerve number three, like we said before, at the ciliary ganglia, which includes part of the ophthalmic nerve, which is V1 trigeminal nerves branch number one. The ciliary ganglia also houses some sympathetic nerves that come from the cervical ganglia and help to supply Mueller's muscle or the superior tarsal muscle. It gives off the short ciliary nerve. This carries parasympathetic fibers as the second neuron in the pathway that comes from the Ettinger-Westphal nucleus. It also carries some sympathetic fibers like we talked about from the cervical chain ganglia. And this all innervates the iris and ciliary body, which we talked about in our first podcast. Next, we have the ophthalmic nerve, like I talked about, that comes in to the ciliary ganglia and is from trigeminal nerve number five, and it's V1. And it goes through the superior orbital fissure and then out through the supraorbital notch. And it has a frontal branch, a lacrimal branch, nasociliary branches, which give off the long ciliary nerve. It has a little more sympathetic fibers in that than parasympathetic, and this all innervates the cornea, so it provides the sensation from the cornea and the pupillary dilatory function. And then there's also the maxillary nerve, which normally goes through the foramen rotundum. Most of the time, this does not go through the superior oblique fissure, but it can occasionally in some anatomic variants. Next, we have a cranial nerve number six, the abducens nerve. Like its name suggests, abducens, abducts. It's the motor nerve, purely. It comes from the pons, and it passes through the superior orbital fissure as well. It's responsible for abduction, abduction of the lateral rectus. Its palsy essentially prevents you from looking laterally, especially if the eye is in the medial direction. And this can cause things such as esotropia. It's important to know that this should not be confused with intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. This is the lookalike that you might see. Intranuclear ophthalmoplegia is caused by damage to the MLF, which is the medial longitudinal fasciculus. This is what I always remember. I always think MLF when I think intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. So this is a tract in the brainstem, and it allows for cranial nerve 3 to coordinate with cranial nerve number 6. Obviously, you have to look medially and laterally at the same time with both eyes when you're looking horizontally. Now, when the unaffected eye abducts, moves out to the side, the contralateral eye will stay fixed. 
because the MLF is broken, it cannot coordinate this. Largely, this is on the in the area of cranial nerve number three with medial adduction, adduction. However, the affected eye can abduct the other way. So you can see this horizontal motion issues with the eyes can be kind of confusing between a cranial nerve six palsy and intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. So one example is if the right eye looks right and the left eye stays straight, but both can look left, that's intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, versus the right eye not being able to look right and the left eye can look right, that would be a cranial nerve number six palsy. It's not really an issue with cranial nerve six, like I said, it's more an issue with cranial nerve three and how it's coordinated with cranial nerve number six. And the direction refers to the side of the face that is essentially affected, basically the side that cranial nerve three is not working on. So a right-sided intranuclear ophthalmoplegia would not be able to look medially on the right eye. And that's an issue with cranial nerve number three on the right side. Now, intranuclear ophthalmoplegia is really important because it can show a whole host of neurological issues. One of the things to think about is it's particularly unique to Wernicke's triad, uh, which occurs in Wernicke's encephalopathy when you have thiamine deficiency with chronic alcoholics. Usually the triad involves encephalopathy. They have some sort of altered mental status. They're confused. So that's the first of the three. Then you have ataxia. Their cerebellar function goes. And then they have ocular motor dysfunction. And usually you can have intranuclear ophthalmoplegia as this. You treat it with thiamine. Once you add confabulation and amnesia, then it becomes Korsakoff, and, it, and then things get really bad for those patients. Another thing that can cause this is multiple sclerosis or a stroke, which can cause a lesion in the MLF. Now we have cranial nerve number seven, which is the facial nerve. We already talked about the main significance it has to the eye. Do you remember? Cranial nerve seven, like we talked about before, is responsible primarily in the eye for facial muscles its motor, and thus it innervates the orbicularis oculi, allowing the eye to close. Remember, seven acts like a hook that closes the eye. Question, what two cranial nerves does the corneal reflex involve? So if you said cranial nerve number five and cranial nerve number seven, you'd be correct. The trigeminal nerve, cranial nerve number five, provides the sensation from the cornea, and cranial nerve number seven allows you to blink. It's the motor portion of the reflex. Now we'll talk about some other anatomy that is uh, neurologically related to the cranial nerves involving the eye. And this is the cavernous sinus. This is a really important structure because most of the nerves supplying the extraocular muscles go through it, especially the trigeminal nerve as well. And it's particularly susceptible to insult like the thrombosis, which can occur if you have a facial infection that tracks back through the eye in the case of an orbital cellulitis and eventually gets involved with the cavernous sinus and that can be really really bad. Uh, serious orbital infections like I said can do this. The carotid artery also passes through the cavernous sinus and so if there's some sort of damage or trauma this can create a fistula between the two and this could be particularly bad. You can see this in the eye these fistulas 
essentially cause proptosis, ecosophthalmos, and sometimes they can be really subtle and just look like conjunctivitis, but be very deadly. A fun fact about this, uh, a cavernous sinus fistula, carotid cavernous fistula, we call it a CC fistula, is that you can actually hear a brewery over the eye, albeit you probably will see some other signs first. Other diseases that can affect these nerves essentially cause paralysis of those eye muscles in the cavernous sinus. And the cranial nerve number six, the abducens, particularly is the most susceptible of these cranial nerves as they pass through the cavernous sinus. Something we want to talk about with ocular motility that you might lump in is nystagmus, and nystagmus involves these saccades or quick movements of the eyes. And it can be really important for diagnosing neurological disease, but rarely it indicates an issue with the eye itself or the nerves directly going to it. Largely, it's an issue with coordination of the eye, and this stems from the brain itself, largely in the cerebellum, some global issues with the brain, with drugs, usually any question asking about nystagmus, PCP is usually the answer, or issues with the vestibular apparatus. The vestibular apparatus is peripheral, and thus uh, this nystagmus is usually responsive to motions of the head, and it goes away when you have the person fix their eyes. Versus central nystagmus, this doesn't go away when you have someone fix their eyes on an object, and usually represents a problem in the brain itself, like a tumor. And there are different characterizations of nystagmus, like rotatory or pendular, but it's really beyond the scope of this and would be more in a neurological podcast. So some nystagmus can actually be normal when you're testing the eye movements, usually at the far ranges of lateral eye movements, uh, you get a little bit of nystagmus. So it can be physiological as well. Now, we saved this for last, cranial nerve number two, the optic nerve, and the visual pathway, because it's probably one of the most important to the eye. It's a purely sensory nerve, and it relays sight from the retina to the brain. Because it's sensory, its nerves have ganglia, which are largely located out in the retina. And there are three important symptoms that should be associated with the optic nerve and this is what we call an optic neuropathy when there's issues with the optic nerve. One is changes in color vision, which is a weird kind of oddly specific uh, symptom. And then the next two are changes in visual fields, scotomas are what we call them, and a relative afferent pupillary defect. So those three things, color vision, visual field issues, and pupillary defects indicate issues with cranial nerve number two or the visual pathway, and we'll talk about that. So we'll talk about these three symptoms and we'll start with the relative afferent pupillary defect. Do you know what another name for a relative afferent pupillary defect is called? So another name would be the Marcus Gunn pupil. And so this is a decrease in the pupillary reflex in one eye compared to the other. It usually indicates involvement of the optic nerve and usually this is prior to its synapse with the Ettinger-Westfall nucleus. You test this with the swinging flashlight test. And basically you shine light in one eye and watch it constrict. While it's constricted, you swing it over to the other eye, which should also constrict. If that eye dilates instead, then you know that essentially less light, in quotation marks, has made it down the sensory pathway to stimulate the pupillary reflex. And thus it was lost probably in the optic nerve. And that means there's obviously an issue in the optic nerve. 
So the pupillary reflex, the sensory portion is cranial nerve number two, and this takes it to the pretectile nucleus, which essentially activates the bilateral Eddinger Westfall nuclei. So this causes both eyes to constrict bilaterally, and this pupillary constriction is mediated by none other than cranial nerve number three. So, like we talked about, pupillary defects are very important to cranial nerve two issues in pathology. Now, if you have a visual field defect, that's the second of these three symptoms, that can be another big sign that something's going wrong in the visual pathway. Now, this is a pathway that's really, really, really important to memorize, and I'll try to talk you through it through the path of light to the brain, but you should really look at a diagram to really understand it, and we'll try to provide some in the show notes. So, first, light from one of the visual fields, let's say it's a hemisphere, you're looking at a circle, there's two circles, one for each eye, and it's divided in half. We could also say quarters. So light from one of these visual fields, let's say it's on the left side, crosses through your eye to the opposite side of the retina. So light from the left visual field hits the right side of the retina, and that's for both eyes. This will be the medial aspect of the left eye if it's coming from the left field, and the temporal aspect of the right eye. Now, because this visual information from the same field must be integrated in the same place, the information from the medial retina on the left side flows down the optic nerve and crosses the optic chiasm to join the information from the right eye on the right side of the brain. Thus, medial information from the retina must always cross the optic chiasm. And so, this medial information correlates to the temporal field. Lateral retinal information or the medial fields do not cross. Now, this information in the optic tract flows to the lateral geniculate nucleus on the right side. This left-sided visual field that has come from both eyes is now in the lateral geniculate nucleus on the right side. Here the visual field is again split, but this time instead of it being horizontally, it's vertically. Like at the retina, the visual field now goes to the opposite location. Hence, the lower temporal lobe usually gets the higher visual field quarter. This is Meyer's loop in the temporal lobe. The higher parietal lobe gets the lower visual field quarter, and this is the dorsal optic radiation. All of this information then finally reintegrates in the occipital lobes of the visual cortex. All the visual information from the left visual field has now ended up in the right visual cortex, and vice versa. I sincerely hope you will look at a diagram because this is very difficult to explain, but lesions that correlate to visual field loss can be very important, and they can show you where in the brain you have this pathology based on this tract. So, if you have a lesion with the optic nerve, this essentially eliminates the entire ipsilateral eye field, both right and left fields of that same eye. But you will still see both fields because you still have another eye that works. Thus, the person really won't be able to tell unless they cover their good eye. What lesion causes bitemporal hemianopia? And what diseases can cause that? Well, lesions of the optic chiasm cause this field defect, and it can be in diseases that involve pituitary, 
like a prolactinoma. Now, the optic chiasm, like I said, it's a bitemporal hemianopia. So the temporal visual fields will both be knocked out. And this essentially causes a sort of tunnel vision. Next, we have optic track lesions. This leads to a left or a right homonymous hemianopia. So both right-sided or both left-sided in terms of the visual fields are knocked out. And this can happen with strokes or a mass. Pretty much all of these lesions can happen with uh, a stroke based on which artery is involved. Now, Myers loop, if you knock this out, you have left or right upper quadrantinopia because now you've divided it vertically in, from a half into a fourth. And this is usually the pie in the sky lesion. I never really understand um, why it's called that besides the fact that it's usually the upper outer quadrant that is involved. Next, we have the parietal dorsal optic radiation, which is the opposite. In this, you have a lower outer quadrant usually knocked out. Other eye field damaging diseases that you should know about that aren't necessarily as traditionally neurological include lesions of the macula, which essentially knock out all central vision and causes scotoma there. You can see this in age-related macular degeneration, which we'll talk about in a later podcast. And same with glaucoma, only in this case you get peripheral vision loss, uh, which we'll discuss in another podcast as well. And then if you knock out the visual cortex, this causes a left or a right homonymous hemianopia, but usually the key here is that there's macular sparing, so the very central vision is retained. It's really helpful to break down these conditions into their prefixes and suffixes. And remember that these conditions, their names refer to the visual fields, not to the part of the brain that is damaged. Now that we've talked about visual field defects, we should worry about color vision, the last of the triad that essentially involves optic nerve damage. And this is really classic in the case of multiple sclerosis. Usually changes in color vision are a big giveaway for this disease as well as neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, or NMOSD, and we'll call multiple sclerosis MS from now on, probably. In the triad we talked about, like I said, color vision changes, field changes, and an afferent pupillary defect are unique to what we call optic neuropathy. This means any sort of disease of the optic nerve, and most specific optic neuropathies are really beyond the scope of step one, uh, but you can also get issues with this with orbital masses that are compressing the optic nerve. The most important optic neuropathies probably for step one are multiple sclerosis, MS, and neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, or neuromyelitis optica. And so these are characterized by optic neuritis. Now, optic neuritis is a little different from other optic neuropathies because you have inflammation of the optic nerve and this causes a very unique optic neuropathy that involves associated eye pain. Some of these other lesions that involve the optic nerve might not cause eye pain, but if you have eye pain in association with visual field loss, color vision changes, this is a big giveaway for multiple sclerosis or NMO. And you get a likely clinical history with these patients with a T2-weighted MRI with different lesions separated by time and space. That's the big buzzword for multiple sclerosis. You should know particularly that neuromyelitis optica is essentially a worse version of multiple sclerosis, albeit the patient demographics are a little different 
than MS, which normally has young white women. Um, it can have some associations with vitamin D deficiency in the case of MS. But there are important differentiators for NMO, especially clinically, as a separate disease because the treatment and prognosis can be a little different than MS, particularly worse in this case. NMO can be differentiated by aquaporin antibodies against aquaporin channels in the spinal cord and also in the brain, and also it can have basically spinal lesions on this T2-weighted MRI, but usually these span three vertebrae, and that is a lot more usually than the multiple sclerosis lesions, and it can be really, really damaging to eyesight. Finally, we'll talk about this symptom called papilledema. This is a really great sign or buzzword that if you see in step one, essentially indicates that there's some sort of neurological issue going on. It essentially is swelling of the optic nerve, as seen via fundoscopy, that correlates to an increase in intracranial pressure. Optic nerve edema, which is a little different, may look very similar, and it's kind of beyond the scope of step one differentiation. However, anytime someone uses the word papilledema, and if that is positive for the patient, that means that there is an increase of intracranial pressure. And you can't tell this just by fundoscopic exam alone. Usually it necessitates that you've had a lumbar puncture. Thus, you can't really just see papilledema, but you can have really high clinical suspicion. But papilledema equals increased intracranial pressure. Thus, you should think about diseases that increase intracranial pressure. Number one should be a brain mass or cancer or brain cancer. Um, another can be obstructive hydrocephalus. And basically, when you have increased intracranial pressure, it pushes this pressure down the optic nerve and basically pops the optic nerve out into the eyeball a little bit. Some other things that can cause this can be meningitis. And if you really have no evidence of anything else, it could be idiopathic intracranial hypertension, previously called pseudotumor cerebri. Now, it's important whenever there is papilledema suspected, you should perform imaging first and then a lumbar puncture. Imaging should come first because if there is a mass causing the intracranial hypertension, it can potentially cause herniation with a lumbar puncture. You should also know if you have increased intracranial pressure, what do you get? Well, in this case, you get Cushing's triad. So that is increased blood pressure, irregular breathing, and decreased heart rate. The increased blood pressure is on the systolic side, and you get a widening pulse pressure. Now we talked about pseudotumor cerebri, or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and this usually occurs in obese women. They can be on retinoids. Doxycycline or Accutane are big drugs that can cause this. And these patients usually have visual field defects, and this is really important to consider because these patients can go blind because of their symptoms. Now, it's important, like I said, never do a lumbar puncture without checking imaging first because it can lead to what? Herniation. That's correct. We'll finish with the ophthalmologic exam so you can really understand the different portions of what findings might mean if you get a clinical question about ophthalmology. So the ophthalmic exam, it's important to know what these physical findings mean. We're going to start with eye vitals, essentially. And uh, this comes in five parts. You have the pupils, 
pressure, visual acuity, which is how you do on the 2020 test, essentially, confrontation, also known as visual fields, and extraocular movements, the slit lamp exam and the fundoscopic exam. So with pupils, if you don't understand the importance of pupils, at least neurologically, from this podcast, you should definitely listen to this podcast again. With this, we check for an afferent pupillary defect to essentially see if anything's wrong with the optic nerve, and you also check baseline if there's any anisocoria. Like I said, that's the difference between pupil sizes. Next, we check pressure, which we'll talk a lot about in our glaucoma lecture in the next podcast. And then we'll check visual acuity. In this test, how well you see, especially in the central region. And this can be affected in many eye diseases from refractive error in our past episode to neurological diseases. And it's measured at a standard of 20 feet. Hence, you get 20-20 vision. Next, we have confrontation, which is another name for visual fields. This is when you flash your two fingers or one finger or four fingers in a person's visual field. And it can be a good approximation for gross quadrants. There's also specialized electronic testing that you can do for visual fields as well. As shown in this podcast, it's really important for analyzing neurological health in the visual pathway or in the optic nerve. And then we have the extraocular movements. And it's the age test, like we talked about before, that can be affected by issues with the cranial nerves or with the ocular muscles. Finally, there's some supplemental tests we have. There's color vision. Those are the Ishihara plates that you might have seen with the different dots that essentially can let you know if you're colorblind. Then there's ocular alignment. Uh, We talked about the light reflex where you shine it off of the pupil and you align those. There's fluorescine, which you can use to assess the structural integrity of the cornea. Gonioscopy lets you look at the angle of the eye. There's also optic coherence tomography, which is another really special imaging, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. Then we have the slit lamp exam, and this is just grossly looking at each part of the eye, particularly in the anterior segment, and seeing specific characteristics, and it's all under this microscope. And you can see the surface, the cornea, the conjunctiva, the iris, the lens, all in really good detail. We have the fundoscopic exam, which will describe the retina, the optic nerve, and its specific characteristics. And this is where you would see papilledema. So, quick review question. Which two reflexes are important for considering the health of the brain, especially the brain stem, because of its approximation with the cranial nerves? And you can do this with the eye. So those two reflexes are the pupillary reflex and the corneal reflex. So for a quick recap of everything, one, if you hear the term amblyopia, always think of kids. Diplopia is a major symptom of ocular motility issues, whether nerve or muscle-based. Always consider each eye individually when you're examining them, especially when you're trying to figure out which ocular muscle is involved. Think of nerves as sensory, motor, parasympathetic, and or sympathetic. Remember, cranial nerve palsies occur when the nerve has been knocked out, often by compression, and thus its muscle corresponding to that nerve is weak, and its antagonist is stronger by comparison. Think of central nervous system pathology whenever you have a cranial nerve palsy, but especially think of compression, either aneurysms or masses. 
and be careful of similar diseases with cranial nerve palsies. Remember, cranial nerve 3 palsy looks like Horner's a little bit. Cranial nerve 4 palsy looks like torticollis from a sternocleidomastoid issue. Cranial nerve 6 palsy can be confused with intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, and nystagmus can be confused as an eye disease when it can really indicate a central nervous system disorder or something with the vestibular system. Understand that the trigeminal nerve is linked to many other nerves, especially autonomic ones. It kind of provides a highway that those nerves can hitch a ride on. And re always remember the importance of the pupil, especially in regards to parasympathetic function and the nervous system and the structure of the brain. And remember the importance of visual fields for neuro-optho diseases. And understand what information is important in the ophthalmologic exam and what it can mean for you in your question stem. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast and leave your questions, comments, and concerns at spoonfulofsugar.org. Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.